right. Praise God. This is my last power tool message for a while. I've had a series we've been doing called the Power Tools of the Gospel. I think we've had like four or five messages along this line. Power tools, meaning tools that God's given us, right? The energy, energy, uh, being energized by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, not trying to serve in our, in our own strength. Uh, and the power of the gospel. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it's the power of God is salvation to everyone who believes. That you first and also the Greek. Amen. We've got the, the exousia, the authority of Jesus, who all power in heaven and earth is given unto him. And then we have the dunamis, that dynamic, miraculous power of Jesus, who is able to say exceedingly above that which we dream or think according to the power that works within us. Amen. So we have the power of Christ. We have the power of his word. Amen. Which is sharper than any two-edged sword. The power of the gospel. Uh, so effective. The power of the Holy Spirit. He would he'd fill believers, he said, with his power. So he'd be his witnesses. Amen. So he didn't just say, hey, go. He said, I'm going to fill you with my power. So he wants to use you. And I'm telling you right now, I was telling a story at the end of my last message. Up Now, now I'm going off. Okay, now I'll get to all these notes. But uh, most of them, or a lot of them, I shouldn't should say that. I've got to be careful. But uh, I've got to share just a little bit. And I was sharing the end of a message uh, about the power of just, I'm wondering if I even have that in my, my wallet. You know? Yeah, I do. And, uh, wow, not in my wallet, but in my pocket, is, uh, man, Lord, help us not get too crazy, because uh, I wasn't going to share this, because I want to really focus in on the message I prepared for tonight, which we will. It ties together, because we're talking about sharing the gospel. And I want to do a series of messages prior to actually going out, right? Not to just help us this weekend. And by the way, we'll take a thousand tracks. We we'll probably won't get all those out on Saturday, but a lot of them. But eventually, Simi Valley, like 47,000 houses, will have the witness of Jesus Christ in their house in Simi Valley. So pray about that. Amen. But I want to encourage you because I just see, if you pray and you seek the Lord, you see divine appointments. You see how he lines things up. You know, you see how uh, you're, you're just you're flabbergasted. You're stunned. You're astonished. You're like, what in the world? And you're like, and you shouldn't be to a degree. On one hand, we should say, of course, that's how God works. He's God. Amen. On the other hand, you should be because you should always be excited that he's working in your life, amen, and that he's working in the, the hearts of believers and unbelievers. But uh, when I gave, the, when I, we're going to do this conference, uh, they asked us to do, you know, they didn't specifically say you could do this, that, or the other, and then a request came up, and the request came up after we had picked our subject, and I thought, you know what, I'm glad they made that request because that's so important. And I don't think we don't understand how important this subject is, many of us, because we're not under the power of a delusion that is hurting a lot of believers in their hearts, making them unsure whether God loves them and so forth. So the series was on the New Apostolic Reformation, exposing what's going on in the New Apostolic Reformation. And the New Apostolic Reformation is short, it's called NAR, N-A-R, is that there's a group of very, very powerful men as far as their influence goes over tens of thousands of churches. And it's the biggest, moving, biggest movement in the Christian church in the last several years. It's not just here in the United States, but South and Central America, Africa, a lot of Europe, and so forth. And these men claim to be the new apostles. Some of them say that we're going to be doing such miracles that the apostles Peter, James, and John, Paul would be envious of what we're doing, you know. And they want apostolic authority over our churches. And... Uh, they have such an effect where, but they're claiming they're doing all these miracles, you know, rising people from the dead and all these strange things. But this movement is connected to the prosperity movement, the name and claim it, prosperity gospel, you know, that we are little gods, 
the whole laughing revival thing is connected to this, that where they bark and they laugh and they, and they, and they you know, do all these strange things. And a lot of it's demonic. I've done a three-part series on that. New wine or old lie was one of them, laughter revival. New wine or old lie. Uh, divine or demonic was another one. You can check it out. I play clips of just hysteria. In fact, when I did They Sold Their Souls for Rock and Roll, I couldn't find uh, good enough audio to describe what hell sounds like. I even picked up a couple horror movies to see if I could find blood-curdling audio to describe how hell, because I'm showing what the rock stars, a lot of them are saying, like Ozzy Osbourne, hey, you want to go to hell because I'll be there. We'll have a good time. And show them singing about how hell is great and say, nah, here's what Jesus said about hell. But I was trying to find, you know, I used, you know, outer darkness like lava flows and just what would the lake of fire maybe look like and try to make it dramatic. But I couldn't find really good, a lot of what I found was just cheesy stuff. I'm not using that background. But then I thought, oh, man, some of the background or for the background, I'll use some of the stuff from the so-called laughing revival because it's, it's, it's demonic. It's so it's like blood. You can't even make some of the sounds of shrieking. sound like demons coming out of people. In fact, a lot of times they, a lot of people that were part of that movement said it was demonic, you know. So it's interesting. I use that as my background sounds as best I could find to sound like what hell might sound like. Crazy uh, little commentary there on that whole setting there. So, uh, so they wanted to do something on the New Apostolic Reformation. And by the way, we don't do elevation music here. We don't do Hillsong. We don't do Bethel music because that's all part of it. In fact, that's the main music that's being played on most Christian radio around the, around the country now, much of the world. Did you know that? There's a whole monopoly, and it's affecting a ton of people and drawing them in because the enemy always uses music. It goes after the youth and so forth. There's so much good Christian music, we don't have to compromise. And if we had to compromise, we still wouldn't. We just sing without, you know. But praise God, there's thousands of good Christian songs. People just hear certain songs over and over again because there's a narrative. And I, gotta have, I have a quote from Bill Johnson, the leader, maybe considered the leading apostle by many people up there in Northern California, Reading, where he talks about we use music to go past the brain, you know, and get to their emotions. I'm like, this is like right out of they sold their souls for rock and roll, you know? The quote's really crazy. So uh, I was gonna, we, did, we did a series on that. I did a couple of teachings on that. Chad had done one in regard to the connection to Roman Catholicism. Because they're all like, it's this whole ecumenical thing, getting ready for the whole end time situation. And they asked me if I would do a message on Calvinism. And I said, uh, sure, I'll mix that, in, mix that in. So the Sunday I did a message on Christ versus Calvinism. Because I really want to talk about Jesus, right? About contrast the aberrations in Calvinism with what Jesus taught. And, I, and it was like, it was a, I thought it was about a two hour, two hour and 15 minute message, right? And I thought, I was hoping people's eyes wouldn't gloss over, which they didn't, you know. People were just focused because it was really heavy how it went down. But at the end of the message, we don't, you know, usually I've spoken at different conferences, different places. I've, we just got invited back to Canada, but I've been in Canada. Uh, somebody else invited us. So actually, we had like, I don't know, 10 German people from Mennonites, you know, uh, who visited us, a couple, uh, the brothers. Uh, and if you guys are listening, we love you guys, man. And I forget how exactly they found us, but... Uh, some of the men's retreats, some of the brothers have shown up. Uh, or when we do, they ask us over the East Coast to do men's retreats. So we've done a couple of them in what Connecticut stuff, and uh, it's really cool. But I met some of the Mennonite brothers who just, uh, you know, Mennonite background, and it's really cool, really neat guys. But we saw them up there, and they're like, "Man, can you guys come up to Canada and do a conference?" So we're like, "Let's." That maybe in a year or so, you know, we'd love to. These guys are great. They say, we'll have like 500 people there. They're excited about it. We really need it. So I'm saying, yeah, that'd be cool and everything. What's interesting, though, is people are struggling with different things. 
and what we keep hearing. And Mary, uh, when I was marrying Keith, Mary said, Joe, most people are from outside of the state that either drove in or flew in to, to see this, and they're starving for truth. These are people that love Jesus but are having such a hard time finding churches. And they're either Calvinistic or they're NAR or word faith or liberal or whatever. And we all know there's also there's, there's solid churches out there, but it's hard to find these days. So I always say, just keep looking, keep praying, you know, you know, because uh, but so many have let us know it's you know been so hard for them. So uh, and a lot of Calvinists will say if you're outside of Calvinism, you know, it's just everything is just junk, you know, which isn't true. You know, we've got a lot of solid churches where they're out there. Jesus said, "I'll build my church; the gates of hell will not prevail against it." Amen. You know, and right here is one. A lot of Jesus lovers, we still believe in the power of God, but we believe that Jesus died for everybody and will always be saved, truly, amen? amen? And that's his heart. So uh, they wanted me to do something on Calvinism. I thought, you know what? I know that's a problem there, you know? I know a lot of our live streams, James Jackson in Texas, he said it's a huge problem they deal with there. And the idea, when we talk about Calvinism, it's the idea uh, that, you know, the five points of Calvinism, TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, and I'm not going to get all into it because... It'll take too long because I want to get into this message on your the last power tool, which is preaching, uh, using Bible prophecy. But a lot of this is related to Bible prophecy because we're told in the last days it will not endure sound doctrine. But Calvinism teaches that John Calvin himself, and I did Calvin versus Christ, taught that everybody's future is fixed, your eternity is fixed. You're either predestined to hell, Calvin taught, or you're predestined to heaven, you have no choice in your salvation. So before you were born, God already fixed you, uh, and, he, and he did it arbitrarily in a sense, in the sense that he didn't refer to your heart and where you were at and, and whether you'd ex- accept the gospel of Jesus Christ prior to his regeneration. Calvinism teaches that Jesus elected you, right? Not on the basis of foreknowing. The Bible says he chose us according to his foreknowledge, 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2. And he predestined us, that movie foreknew. He predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Romans 8, 20 to 8 and 29. And the ones he foreknows are those who love him. Verse 28. But they divorce what God's joined together. Let no man separate. They divorce foreknowledge and predestination. And they just say, no, God has no reference to us at all. So he predestines a bunch of people to hell and some people to heaven. And none can cross from one side to the other. It's either already fixed. And Jesus only died for the elect not the great vast amount of humanity that's going to hell. And that's the only ones he really, truly wants to save because he decreed that Calvin actually taught that even infants that aren't saved when they, they're ba- they die as babies uh, are hateful to God and abomination and to be punished forever. You know, it's a hideous doctrine. And uh, no wonder, you know, so many Calvinists have shuddered in fear wondering if Jesus died for them because how could you know? You can't know who Jesus died for. Because Calvin taught that God gives a phony grace to people to make them think they're saved. So even if you think you're saved, he can withdraw that grace. And he, Calvin says he gives you evanescent grace, a disappearing grace, to whereby you feel you're saved for a while, you think you are, you think you have grace, and then he withdraws it so he could damn you even more. Well, so when we were there visiting, I went through some of those teachings. And uh, at the end of the conference, uh, at the end of the conference. By the way, Nico did a really good job on Romans 9 on a Tuesday. They set at our house on Tuesday night on Romans 9. That went really well. You know, I caught the, we caught the last three quarters of that. That was beautiful. And uh, just right on time, Nico. All right. Topic-wise, you know. 
So it was interesting because at the end of the conference, the last day, now it's been two hours of almost 15 minutes at that point, and I lift up this right here. And this is a heart with a, a cross in it, welded together. And a couple years ago, when I did the men's retreat, uh, we did the men's retreat, we were do, addressing the seven churches. And one of the churches I had, I had to deal with four of the churches, but the church I was on during that time was the church at Ephesus that Jesus was addressing. The seven churches that Jesus addressed in Revelation 2 and 3. And the church at Ephesus, remember what they did wrong? I mean, they were really good at you know, discernment. They tested those who said they were apostles and were not and found them liars. You know, they hated the deeds of Nicolaitans, which Jesus says, I also hate. He commends them for that. He goes, but I have this thing against you. You have left your first love. They left their first love. He says, remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I'll come to thee quickly and remove that candlestick out of its place. So I mentioned how before the men's retreat, I was going to stick a, 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 basically a nail in my pocket, sharp nail in my pocket. Not because I'm sadomasochistic, but because just to remind me of what he went through. Everyone saw I get poked. No big deal. Reminds me of what Jesus did for me on the cross. And I mentioned that, but I didn't grab a nail, right? So what's crazy is through this conference, there was a, a guy in his 70s, really neat guy. I, lo I love the guy. But he announced to me that he's a Calvinist, you know? And, you know, in a disagreement with some of our teaching because of his Calvinism. And we had a couple of nice talks, you know? A little bit of tension because he's in a conference where he's, we're not Calvinist, you know. In fact, we teach very clearly that God so loved the world. Amen. And Jesus died for everyone. And you have to continue in the faith, which Calvinists will teach as well. But so what's crazy about this whole thing is at the very end of the conference, um, so we got into it. At one time we got into this, I could see the guy was a little upset, you know. And I said, Lord, help me just love this guy, you know, and uh, so forth. And uh, I, I should give you a little bit more detail so you understand some of the things that were going on. He said to me, when he first talked about who he was, he says, as a Calvinist, he goes, I'm a Calvinist, and we believe that God is sovereign. And I go, yeah, I go, we believe God's sovereign and all-powerful as well, you know. But I go, in fact, we believe he's more powerful than you believe he is. <laughs> as my, my God is bigger than your God kind of thing, you know. It's so funny. And, and he, goes, he goes, I never heard that. And I go, yeah, it's true. I said, the reason we believe that, I go, is because you believe that everything is scripted by decrees, that God gave his decrees, and nothing can change for what he decreed is going to happen. It's all a script. In fact, you believe that the only way God can know the future is because he's decreed exactly what will happen. In fact, Calvin himself taught that God knows the future because it's all decreed. He says, otherwise, how could he know what would happen? To me, that's a weak view of God. Because he's saying the only reason God knows what's going to happen is because he is making it happen. He decreed it. But he couldn't know the free will decisions of free moral agents. To me, that's a weak view of God. Isn't that interesting? And I was sharing this with him. And I said, you know, because that's what Calvin and many other Calvinists have. I have a file I've been keeping for years. When I see Calvinists say that, I keep that in that file. Because I'm always working on books that never come out, you know. But that's for that section of the book, you know. And uh, anyway, uh, so I said, we believe that he knows everything that will happen, even if he doesn't make it happen. Because we don't believe that God is the, is the author of evil. 
The Bible says God does not do evil, and he can't be tempted to do evil. And every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father lights. And so we had a good talk, and I gave him some what we call counterfactuals, that God can know the decision we'll make when we're faced with different issues and what will happen if we make this decision or that decision. It's not all scripted, okay? He decrees certain things for sure, right? But he doesn't decree us to do evil and then blame us for something that we've been decreed to have to do and then blame us for eternity for doing exactly what he decreed us to do, which was really, would, be, would really be his will ultimately, wouldn't it be? And so I mentioned David when he was hiding from King Saul and Kayla. It's my, one of my favorite examples of what we call counterfactuals. These are things that are counter to what actually happened, but could have happened if God would have permitted it. So we believe that there's all kinds of wickedness in the world, but we believe in God's permissive will. He permits things to happen. He permits certain evil things to happen. Uh, Dr. James White, who's a leading Calvinist, was in a debate with a guy named uh, George Bryson on the Bible Answer Man years ago. And the Bible Answer Man was the moderator. moderator and uh, he was asked by George Bryson, does God decree rape? Child rape. And he refused to answer for a little bit. And then Hank Anagraph said, just answer, yes or no. And he said, yes. You know? But then he followed up by saying, otherwise, you know, there wouldn't be any purpose in it. It's like, oh, great. I could tell my daughter there's a purpose in you getting raped. God decreed it and made it happen. That's ridiculous. That, God can get purpose. God is so powerful that he can get purpose and use things that are evil against us and work it for the good in our lives. Amen? Because he's a good God who doesn't do evil, and that's why we can put our hope in him. But I shared with this gentleman when King, when king David was, and he wasn't actually officially king yet, was hiding in Kayla, and, and those in Kayla were protecting him. And he wanted to know if King Saul was going to show up there. And if he showed up there, what, were, were the people going to deliver him over to King Saul to be killed? And God said, yes. He prayed and sought the Lord. He said, yes, he's coming. He's going to come. And yes, they're going to give you up to him to be killed. And then David had to make a decision. And he booked it. He took, he took off. Uh, so, you know, then King Saul found out that he wasn't going. He didn't stay in Kayla. And ended up not showing up because he was gone. Which shows you that you have choices to make. Amen? It's really, really clear. Amen? And that God knows what will happen if you do this, that, or the other. That's because we have such a powerful God. You know, I told this gentleman, I go, so that's why we believe it. My God's bigger than your God, <laughs> you know? And, and it wasn't like that kind of attitude. It was love. I totally loved this guy, and he knew that. And God worked that out really in an awesome way because I, I just said, I was so gentle with him. I was saying, that's, how, that's why we believe that. I go, bro, he's so much bigger than, and I go, that's usually a trump card for the Calvinist. It's God's sovereignty. We believe he's so powerful. I'm like, no, you believe he's, in fact, you know what? Calvinists don't believe he can know something unless he decrees it, i.e., e.g., John Calvin, Yet, you know, those who believe in what's called process theology or open theology, open theism, you know what they teach? And the Calvinists hate it. And I, I disagree with it too. I've spoken against it. The open theists are those who believe that God doesn't know the entire future. So he knows some things generally, but he's going to see seeing what's going to happen still in open theism. And the Calvinists will say, that's a, a, some of them will say, call it either heresy or close to heresy. And then I, said, I scratched my head. I said, wait a minute. That's kind of what you believe. You don't believe God can know. They, they don't believe God knows all the future because they don't believe God decreed all the future because they believe just like the Calvinists, he can only know what he's decreed. But he's left some things open, open theism. The Calvinists believe the same thing, but they just believe he what? Decreed more things to happen. Decreed everything to happen. 
I'm thinking, really, you guys have the same view of God. One just believes that he decreed more than the other. Isn't that a trip when you think it through? It's really heavy. Because I'm thinking, when I step back, when I was first going on, I would see this controversy, I'm like, wait a minute, you guys kind of believe the same thing. The open theist just believes God, that, that there's things that God didn't decree, and that they're open, that it's open, he's at risk a little bit, but he's not at risk. But some will say he's at risk, but he's not at risk because he's still in control, they'll say. So we had a great talk, but at the end of the conference, and this guy, man, I just, I just lo- started, I love this guy. I had a burden on my heart for him, you know, throughout the conference. And that was before this last conference. And at the end of the conference, he came up to me, and he gave me this thing. He said, Joe, I made this before you. I made this for you. And it was really sweet. And this was, he didn't take off and make it as far as I know. I don't know how far away he lived from there, but he had already made it before we even met. I told him how precious this is to me, this to me. Go, that's so sweet. I go, because the thing is, he's a blacksmith, right? He was a, a, a shoer of horses, you know, made horseshoes. And he made this cross, he made this heart, and then he made a cross out of horseshoe nails. Now keep in mind, remember what I said I wanted to put in my pocket before I got there, wasn't able to? Bunch of, some nail, a nail. Now I got four nails in my pocket all the time. And I'm like, Lord, that is a trip. And I said, see how powerful God is, you know? He goes, but it was scripted. No, we didn't have that time, you know. I, I didn't ruin the moment with that, but, you know, we could have went back and forth and talked more theology, but that was not the moment. But I was like, and I, but, I, but, you know, I poured out my heart to him. And I just shared, the, you know, uh, how I loved him, you know. And I said, but isn't it amazing how much God loves us? I go, and his name's Tom, really awesome, awesome brother, loves Jesus. And I go, Tom, I go, you know, uh, this reminds me of John 3.16. The heart for God so, what? Love the world. And the cross that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Amen? How beautiful is that? And then I, then I made it, but you know what? And then I said, my Calvinist brethren, I just wish they knew. They, didn't have, they don't have to doubt whether God loves them, because many do. They don't have to doubt whether Jesus died for them. I go, because that verse right there, and I, and I told the, now that, that's the conference a couple of years ago, right? Then I'm telling the conference we just had this last week in New York. I said, I was telling them the story. And I was saying, then I told them that I made it more personal with him. And he seemed like a pretty steady guy. But I said, Tom, you don't have to wonder if God loves you. I thought, what if he's doubting deep down? Because look at what he made. It's beautiful. How could he be doubting? But I know Calvinism. How can you know for, that you know for sure he died, died for you? You can't know. Well, I have this experience. How do you know it's not what Calvin said, evanescent grace? So I, I, and many, many Calvinists go through suicidal thoughts because they think they're not elect and not chosen. They can't be chosen. It's a, it's a fact of history. It happens to this day all over the place. That's why it needs to be corrected. And I said, I go, Tom, I go, you, you can, I, I go, because if you keep reading John 3.16, right? And I told the conference two years later, which was last weekend, I told them, I go, if you remember, if you forget everything in this message, and you're talking to a Calvinist, this goes for you guys as well. And everybody in our, in, our, in our audience out there, we love our live streams. We praise God for you guys. You, you praise the Lord for you. I go, you can go right to John 3.16 and look at the context. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And the Greek word cosmos there is used throughout the Gospel of John. And you look at how the word world is used there. It's not talking about just the elect. Jesus says in John 15, I chose you out of the world, 
right? You're not of the world. And because you're not of the world, the world hates you. Otherwise, the world would love its own. You can't put elect there. I chose you out of the elect. And if the elect hates you, it's because the elect hated me before it hated you. You know, makes no sense at all. And uh, the, the word world, in fact, some Calvinists like D.A. Carson, one of my favorite Calvinistic writers, actually. Uh, wait, you have a favorite Calvinistic writer? He's one of my favorite. I said, they're still my brethren. They still could put out some really good stuff. It's just on this issue, you know. And he has a book on the, the doctrine of the love of God. And he, he says in, that, in his section on John, the Gospel of John, he's like, guys, you know, basically I'm summing what. He says, the word world can't be elected in the Gospel of John. He loved the world and he gave his son for the world. Well, that just destroys Calvinism. And how we know this and how you can just forget everything I've said this, this far. You could go to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes him should not perish but have everlasting life. And God didn't send his son to the world to condemn the world, but the world through may be saved. You can go to that right there, that text right there. And you can prove, well, how can you prove that? Maybe world in that instance is just speaking of the elect. No, you can prove it's not. Because in verse 18, he says, this is a condemnation that they did not believe in the only begotten son of God. The world is also made up of who? And why are they condemned? Because they reject believing in Jesus. In other words, the world is not just the elect there, amen? And you keep reading, this is the condemnation, that they love darkness more than light, and their deeds are evil, and they refuse to come to light, lest their deeds would be exposed. But he that comes to light, comes to light, they might show that his deeds are done in God, amen? King James, that his deeds are rotten in God. So I said to Tom, I said, Tom, you, have, you don't have to doubt that Jesus loves you at all. Like we just got to keep reading. I go, and I'm not, I'm not, I was kind of risking something right there. Like I was assuming he might be doubting. And I put my hand on his chest. I go, Tom, you, you can know that Jesus loved you for sure. Just look at the context and you keep reading. He, he loves you. He died for you. You don't have to wonder at all. He starts crying very hard. He starts convulsing in my arms. We hug each other. And it was so beautiful. Because the man who loves God, really loves God, he's convulsing, crying. He goes, he goes, yeah. He goes, they need to keep reading John 3. Keep reading. I'm like, amen, brother. Praise the Lord, you know. And I'm sharing it was super dramatic. But you know what was heavy? That was two couple years back. Fast forward to the conference that just happened. I'm ending our last session. And in our last session, I'm sharing this story. And then I remembered... And I mentioned, the reason I mentioned I spoke, when I speak at different conferences, you don't usually give a salvation call at a conference because usually it's people that are coming to see you who are already in your ministry, right? Or the ministries that are there. And when it's apologetics or something of that nature, you, you expect the people there are, are saved, right? But I noticed that Keith and Mary and, and also I think, uh, yeah, Bill, uh, Keith Van Eyf's, uh brother, and they got, man, this is a great family, man. I, I can go on and on about this family. They just trip me out, you know? Uh, um, Jim, their brother Jim, and their wives, they just, the way they just set everything up, just, they're all amazing people. And they just got all this stuff going, and then all the help they had with Don Bracken and his wife and others, I'm like, just blown away at all the help and everything that happened there. But I'm at this last part, and I share this story, and I thought, I'm going to give a salvation call. Because I heard Bill and I heard Keith say, even if one person just gets saved, I go, man, they're expecting us to reach out and try to get people saved, like there's going to be unsaved people there. Well, they're, you know, we get 90 or 100 people there. You know, I don't know if it, was, it was between 90 and 100 that last day. You don't know, you know, who's going to uh, the last day of the conference. And so I thought, you know what? I'm going to appeal to the, the, the audience to, 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 get, to get saved. If you don't know Jesus, put your trust in him. And I did that. And I knew I was already in. I didn't realize it was, went pretty long. And I gave a salvation call. And a couple people responded. 
And then I asked them, I said, hey, if you want to, you can come up. You don't have to. You don't feel and we could pray for you, you know. And uh, coming up doesn't get you saved, but putting your trust in Jesus does. And praise God if you can pray and encourage that people in prayer and to walk with God. And this gal comes up. And uh, the other guy didn't come up. And that was another story. Neat guy. I talked to him later. She came up and uh, wanted to receive Christ. And I don't know. She's probably like 35 years old or so. And uh, we put some, did Chad post that on the Facebook? Or the, I think that was for the Patreons he posted that. She comes up and uh, she's excited, teary, and in tears. Strong conversion. And I said to her, I go, her name's Anna, so pray for Anna. I go, praise the Lord, we prayed, and she's embracing Christ, trust Jesus fully for my salvation and all that. And she's in tears, just bawling. Then she goes back into her seat, and she was in the front center. I mean, if I could touch one person out there and reach out the first person, I would touch her. She was the whole time, and she's taking notes profusely. And it's funny, I, if I didn't say this, if they didn't say what they said once, even if one person, I wouldn't have probably done that. All God's providence, all the things he did. And then she's in the front taking notes. And I'm like, I go, it's interesting guys, like I'm trying to convict them, them a little bit, you know. You got one person here, she's not even saved, and she's taking notes like crazy. Come on, guys, get in the word kind of thing. I forget exactly what I said. And she goes, oh, wait a second. Let me explain to you what happened then. So I'm like, oh, oh, I don't know. Okay, yeah, of course. I'm like, I thought she just got saved. So I thought she was going to say maybe, oh, I just misunderstood what you did or, or what have you or what you were talking about. But no, she's in tears. And Anna is like Joe. She says to us, she goes, what happened was, everybody's like, I'm just, like, what's, what's going on here? And she's like, I was a Christian for so many years, you know. And she said that uh, I, was, I was a Christian for, for so, I don't know how long. And she said, and then I fell away. And she starts crying because of Calvinism. She starts bawling because I didn't feel I was saved because she didn't think she was one of the chosen ones. And I'm like, what an exclamation point on my message. And I'm talking about the ending of that other message, right? And I'm like, she's like, bam, it's, like I, it's almost like you paid a person to do this. Because she was like exhibit A, right? And it was so powerful, so beautiful. And so many people ministered to her afterwards, and she made new friendships and so forth. And then I talked to her afterwards, and she says that she's followed my ministry for some time on a Good Fight Ministries. And, but she said she was also into Calvinist teachers like John MacArthur and Apologia Studios with Jeff Durbin and R.C. Sproul, you know, Tommy Washer and stuff. Not Tommy Washer, but uh, uh, Washer. And she said, but I kept hearing that I don't have any choice in my salvation, you know, and I may have chosen or I'm not, and there's nothing I can do about it. And then I just fell into despair a couple months ago. And I went into sexual sin and drunkenness, just committed apostasy, fell away from the Lord. And she goes, I don't know if you noticed, but throughout your message, I kept welling up in tears because when you were saying these things, I'm like, that's me. That's what I'm going through, you know? And a guy the night before, the day before, came up to me and actually spoke out to the audience. Well, we're not even on that subject. A Puerto Rican guy who's a street witnesser throughout Times Square, you know? And he's like, Joe, man, I fell away because I started getting into Calvinist, Calvinism and I totally fell away because I've, I, I struggled with something. I thought I must not be chosen. That I just totally gave up. But he says, but God rescued me. Well, this happens the next day. You guys, I don't think you understand. This is John, John Wesley, who's the greatest evangelist, I believe, in the last three centuries. Uh, you know, he said, he called Calvinism predestination poison because it gets in people. 
and they don't feel that they can be saved or they're one of the elect, or they're sure they're one of the elect. Of course, I'm one of the elect. If, if they're humble, as his mom, Suzanne Wesley, wrote in a tract, if they're humble, they despair of their salvation. If they're proud and arrogant, they, oh, of course I have assurance of myself. Of course God would save me out of everybody else, you know. Not that they all are looking at it that way. I'm just, they're, they're kind of simplifying it, but that is a lot of people. So guys, uh, it was so powerful. And I said, and, and, and I didn't even know this was being taped. And I asked, is this being taped? And we found out that somebody was taping it, the whole thing, and not even our crew, another uh, Josh, uh, son of Don Bracken, awesome brother, another Josh, not our Josh. I don't know why we're not taping it, guys. We've got to tape those things, man. And then she goes, uh, but he cut it off right before that happened. I was like, bummer. Although it went to bed on videotape anyway, but it would be cool to hear her testimony. But she gave her testimony later to me. Then I said, can we go out front? I took her out front outside the building with uh, Tony. And Tony got his camera out. We got her on film sharing her heart. Beautiful person, loves the Lord, you know. So we're fighting the good fight, guys. There's a spiritual war out there. And there are not, I don't believe there's hundreds. I don't believe there's just thousands. I believe there's potentially millions of people wondering if they're the elect or not. Wonder if Jesus died for them or not. And that's important to address. So I want to encourage you guys, uh, emphasize, emphasize, there's two extremes today. You got, we need to make sure there's those who don't talk, don't emphasize God's objective love and the objective sacrifice that Jesus made for everybody. We need to preach the gospel and we need to preach that Jesus died for all. Amen? And not leave anybody in doubt. But there's also those who emphasize just his love, but not the need for repentance, right? Not the need for uh, from fleeing the wrath of God, amen? And to truly repent and walk on the straight and narrow road, which is the Jesus road, amen? And to make sure people know that, that, that because guess what? Praise God, one of the, a lot of the Calvinistic churches, a lot of them will preach repentance and that you need to, you know, you need to get right with God and so forth. And, but there's a lot of other people, oh no, yeah, Joe, they'd, they'd be tuning in right now. Oh, praise God, I agree with everything you're saying. But they hear the word repentance, sanctification. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And it's like, oh, wait a minute, that's like foreign language. No, that's Bible language. Amen? So we need to preach the full counsel of God. But wow, so thanks for praying for our time away. Uh, we had a great time. And, uh, but I want to talk about the Bible tool, of the, the, the power tool of Bible prophecy. This is a fifth or sixth message. I think it's number six or seven, actually, on evangelism, and it'll be the last one I give for a while on evangelism. Uh, but I want to talk about Bible prophecy in, in, uh, for a little bit here. And how much time do I have left? 25 minutes? We're, we're, we're going to get into it. So uh, listen to Revelation 19.10. It declares the testimony of Jesus, it says, is the what? Spirit of prophecy. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Do you have the testimony of Jesus? If you do, you know it's the spirit of prophecy. And you know what Beale says here? Beale, who I don't think is premillennial, but in his commentary on Revelation, he does make the point. Uh, he talks about those who believe in Jesus, quote, are a, are, a, are a prophetic people. Those who believe in Jesus are a prophetic people. And that's what he says, you know, Revelation 19.10 is when it says the testimony of Jesus, the testimony of Jesus, who he is, what he's done. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And he says in his commentary, Beale's commentary in Revelation, who, by the way, is a Calvinist, which is interesting. Now I'm quoting the Calvinists. See, I count them brethren still, you know. 
Beale says uh, here that uh, they are a prophetic people. If you believe in Jesus, that's true. You are a prophetic person. You say, well, you know what? I don't know about prophecy and using prophecy as a witness in my witnessing. You guys, if you're not using prophecy when you witness to people ever, you know, a huge percentage of the Bible is prophecy. You know, still over 20% of the Bible is prophecy. So you can't be a student of the Bible and ignore Bible prophecy. But guess what? You can use prophecy when you're witnessing to people because people come to Christ when they start looking at Bible prophecy in droves by the millions. How many of you, before you became a Christian and then you became a Christian, Bible prophecy was one of the things that God used to wake you up? Anybody out there? Oh, whoa, well, put up your hands. Keep them up. Praise the Lord. This whole two rows almost right here and, and then sprinkled throughout the assembly. Oh, those that are in the prophecy come to the front rows, I guess, too. Wow, that's crazy. <laughs> so it's really interesting because Hal Lindsey, okay, and he wrote The Late Great Planet Earth, Countdown to Armageddon. One of those books was the best seller of all time before other books had come out, you know, nonfiction, not bestseller, besides the Bible, of course, that is. And you know what? And, and I don't agree with all of his eschatology because he's pre-trib, but he was talking about end-time events, what the Bible said was going to happen in the future with Israel and so forth. And you know what? There was a revival of sorts. So many people came to Christ after he came out with those books because of those books. I heard people, how'd you come to Christ? Oh, I read, you know, late great planet Earth. <laughs> I was like, wow, it opens people's eyes. Well, guess what? Things are closer than they ever were when he wrote those books prophetically. Things are going down right now. That's just crazy what's happening around us. And you should be seizing upon Bible prophecy as a witness so people can see that this is the Word of God. Amen? Because listen to Isaiah 46.10. Isaiah 46.10. I declare the end from the beginning. Wow. God says He declares the end from the beginning and ancient times from what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and all my good pleasure I will accomplish. Praise God. Amen. He declares the end from the beginning. He says he's a prophetic God. And you get to show them that they don't have to wonder about the future because God already knows what's going to happen. Amen. And he's ultimately in control. In Isaiah 44, 7, the Lord God says, Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people. Since I appointed what? A what? An ancient people. Who are God's ancient people? Come on, who are God's ancient people? Israel, amen? Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. He's saying, I took Israel, I, did, I, I made a people out of Abraham. Read Genesis 12, the first few verses. Okay, what's the odds he, he, one person be taken out of the millions of people that are alive today? Billions now, probably millions then. And you're, he's told you're going to be made a nation out of you. And that happened right there with Abraham. So there's 195 nations about today. Israel is one of them. And it's interesting. This is what he says. I love this. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare it and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and, and, and what will happen. That he's challenging the false gods, the idol gods, the demon gods. Then listen to what we read in Isaiah 46.10. Isaiah 46.10, I make known the end of the beginning from ancient times, right? He states that, but notice what he also says. I read this verse already. 
What he says is going to stand is going to stand. And listen to what he says in Isaiah eleven twelve. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will collect the scattered of Judah from, our four, for, from the four corners of the earth. Because the Lord told them if they rebelled against him, he would disperse them throughout all the nations. Amen? He did that more than once. Can you think of a nation that's been dispersed and persecuted, that's been dispersed all throughout the world because of the rejection of God and ceased to be a country for almost 2,000 years and then became a country again? That's the nation of Israel. You know, uh, years ago, I made four or five trips now to Israel, and one of the trips I went to Israel, one of the first, one of the early trips I went to, I think it was the first or second one, Ted Walker, uh, who is a very good friend of ours, he speaks here sometimes. Uh, Ted and Lynn, if you're listening, they listen all the time. We love you guys so much. They were just at our house a few months back. We love those guys. And uh, they take care of us when we go up there and really bless the church. And uh, when I was up there, man, was I in for a treat. Because I just trip out. Because you see the nation of Israel, it should not exist. They're a nation against all odds. That's because God is in control. And he prophesied about his ancient people that they cease to be a nation and they'd become a nation again. And it's just a blow mine. You go there and you're like, wow, you'll look at uh, you know, Jews from all over the world. You'll see uh, Ethiopian Jews in, in their fatigues, you know, with their machine guns protecting Israel. Black Jews, Ethiopian Jews. And you, people get pictures of them because they're like so cool. And they're just so, and it's like they came from Ethiopia. Lord said he'd take them out of those, all those areas. You run into Jews, Russian Jews, you know, and like, wow, you're talking to a Russian Jew, and, and they came from the north. Well, Ted goes, you want to go to the port of Haifa? There's some Jews coming in from Russia. I'm like, are you kidding? Of course. We go to Haifa, we go on this big ship, and there's all these Jews that are immigrating from Russia. The, Bible, the Lord says he'd take them from the north. And you know what's crazy about that? Ted and I put them on our shoulders. The kids, not the big Russians. Russians can be pretty big, you know. But the smaller Russians, you know. We put them on our shoulders, and we're just like, you know, and we're taking pictures and stuff. And then we read this text to them. Isaiah 49, 22. Thus says the Lord God, because we're Gentiles. Ted's actually part Jewish, though. But I'm a Gentile, and he's half Gentile, whatever it is. And we're putting them on our shoulders, bringing them back. Then we read Isaiah 49, 22. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples, and they shall bring your sons and their, uh, their, their sons in their arms, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. And we're letting them know, you guys, tribal prophecy is being fulfilled right now before your eyes. You're being brought back by Gentiles, and this is what God's word says in Isaiah. And we're letting them know that you have a God that loves you, that said he'd bring you back into your country, into your homeland, and you're coming back. And because it was Gentile believers, Christians, right, that were paying for the ship, that were bringing them back from the north, that's happened over and over and over again. Quite interesting. Now, I love that. That was such a wonderful experience. But I want you to understand that Israel is God's prophetic time clock. Okay, when you're looking at prophecy, Israel is like a super sign. Okay, 
When the Jews had, been, Jesus gave the Jews all kinds of miracles, all kinds of signs. He said, if you don't believe my words, believe my miracles, believe my signs. Amen? Give them all kinds of signs. But they wanted a super sign. What sign do you give us, you know? And he gives them the sign of Jonah, the super sign. This is a sign that will be given to you. That as Jonah was the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. Amen? And that he would rise again. So he gave them a super sign. Well, I believe we have a super sign today, too. And it's Israel. I mean, it's probably, you want miracles? There's a miracle, okay? We don't live for miracles, but we can point to them to non-believers and say, this shows the hand of God. Because this hasn't happened to any other nation. And the very nation that God said it would happen to, happened. So you super, you super sign it when you're witnessing. You ever go to McDonald's and you want giant fries and giant Coke and, you know, and you ask them to supersize it. They still do, they still supersize things like that? Do they? I've been to McDonald's, but once in the last two, three years, maybe twice, maybe. Well, maybe three times, Lisa. But, uh, you know, you'd supersize it. I don't know if that's old school or not. Nobody knows if they supersize. Come on, you admit it if you make it at McDonald's. It could be yummy, man. <laughs> okay. Anyway, you're, these are super signs we're talking. We're talking about super sign. Israel is God's super sign. And here's how you can use it, Israel when you, when you share the gospel. Because people are looking. I mean, people, as you begin to share the word with them, you share the hope of Christ and so forth, they, they're, they're, they'll listen sometimes, right? A lot of times they'll listen. And you can share Bible prophecy with them. And, you know, I, sometimes you go to Matthew 24. You just start reading Matthew 24. Look what Jesus said. You point out to them that in the first few verses, you know, they're asking him about, you know, when will these things be? Because Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple, right? And when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming, he says, and the end of the age? Not will be the signs of your coming and the end of the age. He says, they say, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And it's interesting because Jesus talks about a lot of things. There'll be, you know, uh, see to it. First thing he says is see to it that no one deceives you. For many will come saying, I am the Christ. And deceive many. There'll be many false Christs. And there'll be many false prophets, he says. Amen? Is that happening? Yes. Check. He says that there'll be wars and rumors of wars. Is that happening? Nation against nation. Kingdom against kingdom. It was always a lot of nation against nation, but now it's kingdom against kingdom. I mean, you have like world wars now. World War I, World War II, Right? And then he talks about how, you know, lawlessness would increase. Is that happening? Check. The love of many will grow cold. Is that happening? Check. Yeah. They'll, you'll be hated by all nations because of my name. Is that happening? Yeah. Oh, are you walking to work and they, they clap and say, praise the Lord, a Christian came in. We love you. No. You know, it's the spirit of the Antichrist in the air, man. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so you have this just, you know, and, you know, Jesus talked about this, all these things going on. But then you know what he said? Something really interesting, which to me is like the main sign that the end is really close. He says, when you see in Matthew 24, 14, he says, when the gospel of the kingdom is preached in all the worlds and witness to all the nations, then the end will come. Okay, that's not the sign, but that's showing it's getting really close. But then in verse 15, he says, when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let those who in Judea flee to the mountains. Don't go back and get your goods. Pray that your flight's not on the Sabbath. Because right now, even to this day, guess what? If it's on the Sabbath, you've got to split because the Antichrist is sitting in the temple. 
and it's on the Sabbath, and you happen to be in a building that's tall, on the Sabbath, guess what? The elevators, you can't even turn them on. You can't, because that's working. You can't work. So the elevators just kind of go on their own. You just got to kind of wait, and they skip floors. That's a long story, but you're like, the Antichrist is coming. Come on, elevator, you know? Uh, but, uh, and, you know, and he said, you know, these things. But he said, take off. Now, that is an incredible sign. But that sign would not be able to happen. Why? Unless Israel was a country again. Because just before that, Jesus said that not one stone will be standing on another. The temple is going to be destroyed. And when you compare the Olivet Discourse, Mark 13, and Matthew 24 to Luke 21, Luke gives us more detail about what Jesus said regarding what would happen when the temple was destroyed. He said that Jerusalem would be surrounded by armies, right? By the Roman armies. This happened in 70, actually before 70 AD, on the run-up to 70 AD. But at, in 70 AD, Titus, the Roman general, they basically sacked Jerusalem, who they were already ruling over, but there was insurrection taking place, and they were dispersed throughout the world. So Jesus said that they're going to destroy your temple. Not one stone is going to be standing on another. And by the way, he says the Antichrist will be from the people that, you know, in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel 9. I'll try to follow this. I don't want to get too convoluted because let me break it down how Jesus did because he, he's the master teacher. He said, when you see the abomination of desolation as spoken of by the prophet Daniel, then he says that those who are in Judea take off. Daniel talked about an abomination of desolation. And that would be the Antichrist desecrating the temple. Now we know that Jesus revealed this in Revelation 13. We know that Paul's talked about this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Remember when he said that don't be deceived that day, meaning Christ coming, he said to rapture us up. He said it won't happen until two events happen first. What? The falling away and what? The man of sin will sit in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. Amen. And will exalt himself above everything that is called God or that is worshipped as God. So Antichrist is going to sit in the temple showing himself that he's God. Wanting to be worshipped. And he's going to abominate the temple. Well, you know what? There was a picture of this in the intertestamental period between when the Old Testament and the New Testament were written in the time of the Maccabees. And a Syrian king and came in about 167 B.C. named Antiochus Epiphanes. Okay? He was, he was considered, he was called a madman by his own people. And he went in and took the temple in Jerusalem, and he exalted himself as God. He put a coin out eventually that declared that he is God. And you know what? He put an image of Zeus up. And Zeus is the highest God was of, of the Greeks. He was a Greek, he's, I say Syrian king, but he was a Syrian king, a Greek king that was established in Syria as a king of Syria. So they worshiped the Greek gods. And Zeus was the head of the pantheon of Greek gods. And he's a picture of Satan. Because when you look at, Zeus was up there with a bunch of other gods in one of the churches in Revelation where Jesus says, I know where you dwell, even where Satan's throne is. And they had a big old hillside with Zeus and then all the gods under him. And the gods and nations are demons. So he's, Zeus, is not, Zeus wasn't real. He's a mythological picture of Satan and the demons. And he gets a, makes a statue of Zeus and puts his head on the statue. And guess what he does? He has a pig sacrifice on the altar. He takes the altar of the Lord and, and, and creates an altar for a pig. And he has a sacrifice and sprinkles blood all over the holy ground to desecrate it, to abominate the temple. 
Well, he becomes a picture of the coming Antichrist, the abomination of desolation. The coming Antichrist will exalt himself above all that is called God, or that's worshipped as God. He will abominate the temple. He will make an image, it says, which is really interesting. And by the way, uh, you can actually get into this by, and I, you can actually talk about these things with people because it says in Revelation chapter 13 that the image will speak and it will cause everybody to worship the beast and take his number. If they don't take the number of his beast, well, I can't have questions because we're on tape right here, but afterwards I'll, I could, we can talk. Ashe, love you, bro. But to take the number of the beast, 666 on your right hand or your forehead, I mean, to buy or sell around the world, so this will cause everyone to take a mark on the beast, either 666, either on their forehead or on the right hand to buy or sell. And there'll be an image of beast that could speak, and the image will talk to people, tell people to, I mean, think about that. Could that have happened when Jesus said that? The book of Revelation 13 talks about this image and how it will speak, and it will cause people to worship the beast. But now we're talking about digital currency, going to a cashless society. We're talking about AI, artificial intelligence. There's guys, there's a video of Tom Cruise, but it's not Tom Cruise. You know, when he was on the couch and everything with Oprah, jumping up and down. She wasn't on the couch jumping with him, it was just the show, right? But it moves like Tom Cruise, talks like him, everything else or whatever. I don't know if it talks, but there's all these, they're getting really close, they're making like these replicas that are really crazy, but they're talking about artificial intelligence and now you got Elon Musk and others talking about there's a great concern that this could be really evil where this all goes well yeah I'd say there should be there should be a, a great concern it's interesting because when I'm thinking of a uh, man some things I, I've got for you here that just think of this guys world economic forum and they, they want to bring the world together and have global government they'd like to get rid of your money I believe uh, you know, in fact, one of, the, one of their articles that came out was called The Benefits of a Cashless Society. That means you can't, use, you can't buy anything with cash. The government's going to know exactly what you can uh, buy and so forth. We're shifting toward a cashless society, the article says, with potential for enormous social economic benefits for both developed and developing countries. And they're just, oh, this is going to be great. Yeah, until you lose all your privacy. And the Bible says there will be a cashless society. You'd have to take a mark to buy or sell, or it indicates that. The number, you'll have to take a number. Edward Prasad, this guy, I'm sorry, Enwar, uh, Eswar Prasad, he's actually a professor of Cornell University, speaking at the World Economic Forum in June, okay? We're talking just over a month ago, guys. Speaking in June, uh, listen to what he, he said with the World Economic Forum's icon behind him. The benefits of digital money. There are huge potential gains, Prasad said, okay? Uh, you could have, as I argue in my book, potentially better, and some people might see it, a darker world where the government decides that units of central bank money can be used to purchase some things, but not other things that are deemed less desirable. I mean, this is going on right now as we're talking. They're trying to go to a, a global you know, society, many of them want to, where you don't use cash anymore, where you just use chips. I mean, Tommy was just at a, you know, we played this in one of our little videos uh, recently in one of our podcasts uh, at Whole Foods. Just somebody going and just going like this, just waving their hand over the thing for all the groceries, boom. And Tommy goes, and Tommy was recording with us. He goes, you know, him and my, he goes, you know, 
he was just at Whole Foods and he goes, there was a line and people were just waving their hands. <laughs> yeah, at Whole Foods. Crazy stuff. So, and what's heavy is now you can make an image and now that everybody's like banking, well, this AI is going to be the most intelligent thing. Everybody loves AI, you think, right? Oh, look at the, it's so promising. But a lot of people are like, wait a minute, this is, could be really evil. Well, guess what? AI is just going to be the brains that are just put in computer form in the image of us and probably influenced by, definitely influenced by demonic entities, ultimately, when it comes to the image of the Antichrist. And it's very possible, since it's going to speak and encourage people what to do, this is the brains that's going to get us out. And it says, who can make war with the beast? Because he's going to have all this power. So they'll be like, okay, I'll be happy to get in. I'll take the mark of the beast. So it's just crazy a lot of what we see is going on. But this is what's crazy too. When Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation that's spoken by Daniel in the holy place, the holy place is the temple. Keep in mind, he just, think of the context here. He just talked about how every stone will be destroyed or, or thrown off the temple. The temple will be utterly destroyed, right? They said you'll be dispersed throughout all the nations, taking all the different nations. He's telling them what's going to happen because you've rejected me. And you know what's heavy? And this is really good to use in Bible prophecy. You could talk about Israel and say, hey, God says he established an ancient people. He alone knows the end from the beginning. And he, they'd, be they'd reject Christ, that Christ would come according to Daniel 9, that the Messiah would come, and then they'd be, he'd be cut off, and then the sanctuary would be destroyed. Guess what? The sanctuary, Israel, the, the temple, I'm, so, I'm sorry, was destroyed after Jesus was rejected. Just like it says in Daniel 9. It's right there. You could show a Jew you're witnessing. To, hey, look, it says the Messiah would be cut off, then the temple would be destroyed. So you say, whoever you think the Messiah is, he had to come before the temple was destroyed the first time in 70 AD. Okay? I shouldn't say the first time. I should say this last time in 70 AD. Yes, the Messiah had to be cut off. Who was that? And then they'll scratch their head. Uh, well, it's only Jesus is the only one that fits the bill. Then they'll be dispersed. Then he says they'll be brought back to be a nation. Because Jesus said you'll be dispersed, temple be destroyed. But guess what Jesus said? There'd be another temple that the Antichrist would be in. And the believers would have to flee. And right now, they're talking about rebuilding the temple. In fact, I don't have time to get into it, but I have time to say it to you. And that's this. The scriptures tell us, Jesus went on to say, when you see all these things taking place that surround the rebirth of Israel, everything surrounds the rebirth of Israel in the end, when you read Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, he said, consider the fig tree and how when you see it bud, you know that summer's near. So he used an agrarian picture of a fig tree budding. Springtime. You know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things coming to pass, begin to come to pass. Look up, your, look up for your head is your redemption. Your salvation is drawing near. Guess who's the fig tree? Israel. Because there's these scriptures, and it's all over the scripture, but I'll just mention a couple of them to you. Uh, but in Hosea chapter 9, verse 10, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your forefathers as the earliest fruit of the fig tree in its first season. And he even used the fig tree as a picture of Israel's regathering. In Jeremiah chapter 24, Jeremiah is given a vision of two baskets full of fig trees, or figs. And he talks about these good figs are the ones that are brought back from their exile. God's going to work on them. Back in the land. The figs represent Israel. And when you see the fig tree bud, you know that what? It's getting close. Well, guess what happened in 1948, guys? What happened in 1948? May 14th. Israel became a nation again, right? The fig tree began to bud. The prophetic clock stopped, started again. 
just like God had said. Now it's interesting because this is so important because Jesus gave a couple, he gave a parable, he actually cursed the fig tree. It's in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He goes and he curses the fig tree. Another place, in Luke, he gives a parable about a fig tree. He talks about a man, and he was going to destroy the fig tree, but he said he'd give it three years. And after three years, if it still didn't have anything, he was going to destroy it. And then someone interceded. He said, give it, a, give it one more year, just one more year. Then he gave it one more year, but if it didn't have any fruit, it would be destroyed. Well, guess what? Jesus ministered to Israel for how long? A few years, right? And they didn't see fruit in the end. Oh, but then he gave them 40 years after he was crucified. Yeah, he gave them that... There was intercession done for Israel. Father, forgive them for they know what they do. He interceded, right? And Israel wasn't destroyed until 70 AD. Now they're brought back into the land, which is crazy when you think about it because I just, because that wasn't, it's in Matthew 22 where Jesus says very specifically, he gives this picture of this, he curses a fig tree. You know why he did it in Matthew 22? Because it's right before the end of Matthew 22 where he talks about being, he quotes the Psalms, and he talks about himself being the stone that the builders rejected. But this is marvelous in our eyes because that stone that the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. Wow. And then chapter 23, after he cursed the fig tree, because that's a picture of Israel, he pronounces the famous eight woes from Jesus to the Jewish leaders and the nation. Then in Matthew chapter 23, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have... You know, I long to gather together the hen does her chicks, but, you know, your children as the hen does her chicks, but you were unwilling. Now your house is being left to you desolate. Then in Matthew 24, boom, he talks about the Israel, it'll be destroyed, the city, right? The people will be dispersed, Luke 21, but they'll be brought back together again. There'll be a new temple. There'll be the budding of the fig tree. That's happened, and you're, guys, that happened just before I was born, you know? about 14 years before I was born in some of your lifetime. Is there anybody here older than me now? You know, maybe Big Jim and a few others, you know. But it's crazy when you think about it, you guys. And what's really cool about this is, listen to this, man. I just, I just think it's, this is super cool. After the regathering of Israel in 1948, the prime minister, David Van Gurion, Israel's prime minister, right after they became a nation again, not long after that, he said this, Ezekiel 37 has been fulfilled, and the nation of Israel is hearing the footsteps of the Messiah. Now what's crazy about that, in Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel is brought by God to a valley of dry bones. He says, look, he sees this mass graveyard of all these dry bones, but also he sees these bones rise up, and muscles, and tissue, and skin covers them, and it's this vast people, and he says, this is my people, I'm going to bring them back into the land, and Ezekiel 37, verse 11 and 12 says this, this he said to me, son of man, these bones represent the people of Israel, they're a picture. They are saying, we have become old, dry bones. All hope is gone because they're dispersed, right, in the nations. Our nation is finished. Therefore prophesy to them and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Oh, my people, I will open your graves of exile. That means where they went and were dispersed, the diaspora, and cause you to rise again. Then I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Just 10 years, 13 years ago, 65th anniversary of on Holocaust Remembrance Day. On June 27th of 2010, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who's the Prime Minister again right now, he said this. I think this is really interesting. He said this at Auschwitz. And Auschwitz was the, the biggest concentration death extermination camp they had, the Nazis had. 
He said this on the anniversary of that. He said, we have returned to our homeland. This is on the anniversary of uh, this whole deal. He says, Netanyahu, we have returned to our homeland from every corner of the earth. The Jewish people rose from ashes and destruction, from a terrible pain that can never be healed. Armed with the vision of the prophets, we sprouted new branches and grew deep roots. Dry bones became covered with flesh. A spirit filled them, and they lived and stood on their own feet as Ezekiel prophesied. Now there's about 15 million Jews in the world. About 7 million of them are in Israel. Almost half of them are in Israel now, going back to the homeland. Guys, I mean... We don't have time now, but we could go through just a few prophecies, and I've gone through some. Just one of those prophecies to be fulfilled would be mind-boggling for any nation, right? But there's a host of them. So you share these prophecies with Jews. You share them with Gentiles. They get their attention because God says, I declare the end from the beginning. He says, this is how I show you that I'm the one true God. So you use the evidence that he uses for us to non-believers. You say, wait a minute, man. You wanna, you wanna, you're going to have more faith than I have if you want to believe this is all a big coincidence. Amen? And then you go to Isaiah 53. Now you got their attention. And that's a whole other story, but you go to Isaiah 53, and I wish I had time to talk about Isaiah 53, but most of you know about Isaiah 53. If you don't know about Isaiah 53, and most of you should know about it, it's all about a prophecy about when Jesus reveals himself at his second coming, how the Jews will react to his coming, and how they didn't, we didn't believe, but all of us like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord laid the iniquity was all upon him. And they'll weep and says in Zechariah 12, understanding this is when they pierced. And you start showing them who Jesus is as the Messiah. So I just want to encourage you guys. Get a few things down about Israel when you're witnessing. You don't have to do this, but I want to encourage you. Pray about it. I like to share what's happening in prophecy today. Talk to people at work. Don't just focus on this weekend. It's going to be great. But man, talk to people at work. Talk to friends. Say, hey, you know this stuff with the digital currency they're talking about? You know, as AI has become more popular, you know what the book of Revelation says about stuff that sounds a lot the same? Uh, well, how do you know it's going to happen? Well, I don't know exactly how it's going to happen, but I knew there was going to be a mark and you're right for it. But I know this, Israel became a nation again, and God says this, and all these prophecies are being fulfilled before our very eyes, and now they're continuing to be fulfilled. You need to get right with God, because there's another prophecy, and this is why I love it. When I witness with prophecy, I like to say this. There's another, I end with this usually. There's a prophecy that you really need to know about, because in Revelation 20, 11 through 10, 15, it says that you're going to be standing before God at the great white throne judgment. And Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed man once to die, but after this a judgment. And I love you, man, but I want to let you know you're going to stand before God to give an account for your life. And the books are going to be open. And you're going to be judged by those books. And everything you've done, every bad thing you've done is going to be in those books. It's all recorded, even every idle word Jesus said. And then you can give them the good person test. We had a whole message on the power tool of the law. If you're listening right now, you're like, what's that? Just go back a couple messages. A couple Sundays back, two or three back, and we did that. We give them the law, let them know they need Jesus to be saved from God's wrath, and then preach the gospel, preach Jesus, and what Jesus did for them on the cross. Amen? And of course, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes should not perish, but have eternal life. You guys, I'm so excited about this coming next few days. Okay, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. It's not a lot of time, but man, we'll be so excited that we did it. Amen? Okay, can we all please stand?